in this lovely Lord's intercessory prayer filled with grace and comfort and dignity and much assurance for the saints. We read this morning the portion of this prayer that occupies the second major division of the prayer concerning the Lord's requests of his Father regarding the apostles. Please follow as I read in your hearing chapter 17 of John beginning with verse 6. I manifested thy name unto the men whom you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things, whatever you have given me, are from you. For the words which you gave me I have given unto them. And they received them, and knew of a truth that I came forth from you. And they believed that you did send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of tradition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you did send me into the world, even so sent I them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Please again join me as we bow together and pray and seek the face of our Lord at his help. Our Father, we present before you earthen vessels, willing 
in our spirit to serve you perfectly. Longing, O Lord, to please you in all the things we do and say and think. And desiring with deep hearts that we be used of you this morning. And that the fruit of our labors may redound to many thanksgivings to you for eternity. And that our strivings in the pulpit may bear fruit to everlasting life in the hearts of some who hear us. And may strengthen the saints among us. And may glorify your name. We lay these earthen vessels before you, confessing their weakness, the littleness and weakness of our minds, our easy distractibility, our weak bodies, our sinful hearts. And yet we present them to you as the one who not only ordained that the treasure of the gospel be packaged in these earthen vessels, but who have abundantly provided all that we need to overcome our weakness and to forgive and remove our sin. So, Lord, not for the sake of any of us, but for the sake of your Son, in the light of your promises, and to the glory of your own name, come near now and speak to us. Address our hearts and give us hearts to receive and obey and live into the light of your word. Do hear us and receive our thanks and speak to us now through your word and sanctify us thereby. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. Now as we've been considering the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17 that high priestly prayer which he prayed as though he were already actually literally in heaven and yet he prayed it while he was still on the earth and prayed it so that those who were with him in the earth could by hearing his prayer understand and grasp something of the fullness of truth security, assurance and thereby joy that it was his desire to give them we have seen that this Prayer is divided into three large sections. It began with his address to his father and then issued into the first section which may be summarized in this way as he prays for himself. Here's his prayer. Glorify thyself by glorifying me. In other words, place me into the situation in which by saving men I may glorify thee. That's the first section of his prayer. That's what we've been considering. Christ's great desire is to glorify his Father. But he knows that in order to glorify his Father he has to be glorified. So glorify the Son that the Son may glorify thee. And how is the Son going to glorify thee? by giving eternal life to as many of those whom thou hast given to him. He's going to save men and thereby glorify God. And in glorifying Christ as our Redeemer, God is glorified. That's the first part of the prayer. The second section of the prayer, though, is for his apostles. And it may be summarized thusly. 
glorify thyself by equipping the apostles in promoting the salvation of men in the work which I have appointed them. In other words, glorify thyself, Father, through the ministry of the apostles, through the work which I have commissioned to them. I sent them into the world, even as you sent me into the world. Keep them, guard them, sanctify them, so that they may bear fruit to the saving of the world. And that then introduces the third part of the prayer, which we've not considered yet, but will, the Lord willing, later. Glorify thyself to the uttermost by saving the world to the uttermost. As he says in verse 20, if you want to look ahead, neither for these only do I pray, not only for these apostles and those surrounding them, but I pray also for those that will believe on me through their word. So the three sections of the, of the prayer are clear. He prays for himself in order to glorify his Father. He prays for the apostles so that in their work, in their preaching ministry, in the word of the apostles, which he's given to them, the world may be saved and thereby God may be glorified. And then finally he prays for those who are going to believe on him through the word of the apostles, his church universal. This morning <coughs> we are considering the second of these three major sections of this prayer. His prayer for the apostles. Now everything in this prayer, as everything in our Lord's life, is subservient to the glory of God. But there is nothing to the glory of God that does not have reference to the glory of Christ. There is no glory to God without reference to the glory of His Son. As we have considered already, we cannot glorify the Father without properly esteeming and magnifying Jesus Christ. So by the Son's glory, the Father is glorified. And the Son is glorified by the ministry of the apostles. And thereby the Father is glorified. What does he say? Look down at verse 10 of chapter 17. All things that are thine are mine, and mine are thine, and I am glorified in them. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. One way the Son will be glorified is in the apostles. The Son is glorified in the work and the labors of the apostles. And therefore, God is glorified, which is the ultimate issue. And then there will be a world full of saved men who are saved by the words of the apostles who will believe on me through their word. And in the salvation of those, again, the Son's glory is seen as we read in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. So the saved men will be a partakers of and beholders of the glory of Christ and thereby his Father will be glorified. So you can see how it all works together. We may summarize all this in the words of John Brown who wrote this. 
And I trust that if you're visiting with us, you'll bear with us as we introduce this subject again, as we hope to descend to some very important particulars that will be of good consideration for your own soul. But we need to lay this groundwork. Here's what John Brown says in his commentary on this passage. The consecration of the apostles, and that's where the Lord says, Sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. The consecration of the apostles was necessary to the success of their ministry. And it was through the success of their ministry that the great object for which Christ gave himself a sacrifice was to be gained. The sacrifice of Christ, the giving of the Spirit, the apostolic ministry, the salvation of men are all indissolubly linked together. Had the Son not consecrated himself, as he says, it is for their sakes that I sanctify myself. And he's referring to the setting apart of himself in his death. Had the Son not consecrated himself as a sacrifice, the Spirit could not have been given. If I go not away, he, the Spirit of truth, cannot come. But if I go away, and that was through the process of laying his life down, then the Spirit of truth can come. If the Spirit had not been given... The apostles could not have been consecrated, qualified, and accredited for their work, and for the work of the full manifestation of the gospel of the grace of God. And if this gospel be not preached to all the nations through the apostles, mankind cannot be saved. If you can see at the outset the linking together of all these issues. Now, it's so plain as you examine John 17 that it becomes simple. It's such a simple prayer. But it collects all the great issues of God's glory and the purpose of Christ coming into the world to save men and the means by which he accomplishes that purpose. So again, we see the lovely order of God's plan and his work. But this morning, I want us to concentrate on this prayer for the apostles by first examining the objects of the prayer, the apostles themselves. And second, the substance of the prayer, or what is it he's actually asking his father to do for the apostles and to and in the apostles. First of all then, the objects of the prayer, the apostles. Now it's clear to me, or at least it seems to me, that that's the proper understanding of this section. This is a prayer for the apostles. It's not a prayer for everybody in general. Now, many of the things that he speaks about the apostles and prays for them could also apply to the rest of us. We, the saints of God, were given to Christ from the foundation of the world. He could pray for us in that regard. He later does. But in this passage, this portion is discerning of the apostles and we know that because when he says in verse 12, I've kept those in your name that you gave me, I've guarded them and not one of them has perished except the son of perdition, which is Judas. He has designated the band of men which he has in mind in this part of his prayer. Now he's certainly not saying that throughout history there have been none lost to the cause of Christ who once professed it, except Judas. He's certainly not saying that. He's saying that of the apostolic band who were given for a particular ministry, a specific, precious ministry, only one of those twelve was lost. I kept all the ones I was supposed to keep, except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. 
The only one that I lost was one who never was with me. He was a devil from the beginning, and that's according to the Scriptures. It's perfectly appropriate. But those entrusted to me to keep and intended to be kept, I kept. He's speaking of the apostles. Now, we could argue this from more vantage points, but I think that it would waste our time, and if you wanted to read more about it, you certainly could do so. But I think we'll just assert that this is a prayer for the apostles and then examine it. So let's examine these men for whom the Lord addresses this portion of his high priestly prayer. With the possible exception of the prophets, the most underrated men in all of history have been the apostles of Jesus Christ. They're not infallible men, though when they spoke the words of Scripture and wrote them and dictated them, they were. But they're not infallible. Neither were they sinless men, but they have been greatly unappreciated and undervalued in our history. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, who was added later, not among the twelve, but an apostle, speaks of his conclusion regarding the way the world looks at the Apostles, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. For I think God has set forth us, the Apostles, last of all, as men doomed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You have glory, but we have dishonor. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And we toil, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world the off-scouring of all things, even unto now. He basically equates himself and the other apostles as what you have left when you've scrubbed your filthy pots and when you've cleaned the latrine. We're the leftover waste of the world. That's the way the world views us. That's an accurate description of the reputation of the apostles. They have been viewed this way. Now, I trust you'll understand that later we will incorporate into that comment the treatment of the apostles by Rome so as to find out that they have not valued the apostles biblically and as they ought in their setting them up on the tops of buildings to be worshipped and adored. But proper appreciation for these particular men has certainly not been given in history. So I'm speaking to you today on the unique and glorious apostolic ministry the unique and glorious apostolic ministry. These men were great men. They are to be highly esteemed in the Church of Christ and ought to be highly esteemed by the world, though they're not. They are great for several reasons, but I want to open up to you some of those reasons. First of all, these men ought to be highly esteemed because they had and have a special relation to God the Father and God the Son. Now, not in the saving sense, 
They are no more saints than we are. That's where Rome is wrong. They are no more saved than we are. They are no more beloved in the saving sense than every other saint in history. But they do bear a particular and special relationship to the Father and the Son. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 17 of John again. And isn't it a precious thing that the Lord singles them out and says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I love that, that little passage. It's, the Lord is not throwing out some general, gushy, emotional, sentimental prayer for whoever happens to be along. He has a particular, gracious, loving regard for these men. I don't pray for the world. I'm praying for these. These men are special. This is not some generic coverall prayer. I have particular regard for these men. I highly prize them. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are thine. Now look at this relation between the apostles and the Father. They have a particular belonging to God the Father. They are thine. That's why I pray for them, particularly. They are thine. They are intimately beloved of God. And then he says, And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine. So not only are they the fathers in a peculiar, beloved sense, but they are also the sons. Whatever is yours is also mine intimately mine they were given by the father to the son according to verse 9 they were guarded by the son according to verse 12 they are particularly and peculiarly related to the father they're his and then they're mine the son says you remember in chapter 13 in verse 1 as we introduced that section where the Lord entered into that last night before his betrayal that in the first verse it says before the feast of the Passover Jesus knowing that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having loved his own that were in the world he loved them to the uttermost now that includes no doubt more than just the immediate apostolic band but it has a peculiar reference to those with whom he was about to sit at supper as he went around and girded himself with that towel and bathed their feet, humbled himself and served them tenderly. There was a particular regard that our Lord Jesus had for these men. Spent all night in prayer before he came down and selected them. And from among all of his multitude of disciples, he picked them, directly directed by his Father. And he chose them. You've not chosen me. I've chosen you. And he made them his own in a particular way. And he walked with them in intimacy. He loved them to the uttermost. What a privilege, what a sweet blessing those men had to walk with the Savior and know his personal, direct, intimate, fervent love for them. I want to add, though, that though they have this special relation to the Father and the Son, don't you see that you do too? I trust that you can understand that you're not in the sense of the saving blessing of God's favor inferior to the best apostles. I trust that you're able to say to your own heart, Jesus loves me. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. I hope you're able to see that the Lord Jesus, when he prays for you, which we will see later in this passage, prays for you with the same quality of intimate fervor and love that he prayed for the apostles. The Lord Jesus loves you. He loves you to the nth degree. He loves you with his whole heart. He loves you. You. Individual you. If you're his, by faith in him, you may have the confidence that you are particularly loved by him. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Don't lose sight of that. These apostles had a peculiar acquaintance with that intimate love. What it would have been like to be with them in so many occasions in which he showed it and expressed it. But here it's so beautifully and supremely expressed. He loved them to the uttermost. And Father, they were yours. You gave them to me. It's not as though he wishes he hadn't had them. And you remember the occasions in which they almost would drive him up a wall with some of their antics. When you're going to rain down fire from heaven on the Samaritans, you don't know what spirit you are. One of their mothers came and said, My two boys would like to be on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom here in a few weeks. Whenever you sit on your throne, which we know is about to happen, uh, my fellows have been with you here helping you. John and James, they need to be sitting up here with you. You know not what you're asking. It's not mine to give. Uh, you just you, you wait and see what the Father will do. Uh, these guys seem to exasperate him. When Peter says, I've got a sword, let's get him. Here's a guy that got a couple of swords. And they're going to take on the Roman cohort. I got a third, and remember the Lord said, It's enough. And it's like you say, Enough already. Enough. He puts up with these fellows. They have one of them as a zealot. He's a rebel. He's, a, he's an insurrectionist. He calls a zealot to make a, an apostle out of him. No telling there were times when this Simon the zealot would say, Lord, how, you don't have to put up with this with these Romans, you know. If you're really son, the son of David, we could, could take over this thing and wouldn't it fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament? And we've studied here in this church and we know that much of the Old Testament prophetic outlook was that when Messiah comes, he's going to get our enemies. And they meant their necks and their throats. That's what Peter was doing when he chopped off that ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. He was fulfilling prophecy in his mind. I'll go with you to the death. And it was quite offensive to him and the apostles when Jesus puts the ear back on binds it up and says, put your sword away. That's not, what, that's not how we're going to do this thing. So the Lord loves his own, and he loves them intimately, even with all of their glitches, and with all of their warts, and with all of their exasperating habits. Just the way he loves you. Quit telling him how much he's allowed to love you. Quit reminding him how unworthy you are to be loved. Quit pushing his love back. Quit dictating to the Christ that he should not measure his love to you according to his grace, but only according to your measurement of your worth. That's an insult to him. And it's not expressive of the gospel. Welcome his love and let him love you. Many of you who were raised by fathers who didn't love you, or certainly didn't know how to love you tenderly, as godly men love their children, you know how hard it is to accept love when it's given. Somebody tries and you don't, they don't, you're not comfortable with it. You want it. You spend your life trying to grab it everywhere you can and somebody offers it and you keep him at arm's length. They get close and you run off. You push him back. You go toward a relationship and you start feeling something and you get scared. 
But I tell you, don't do that with Christ. And part of the reason some of us have poor time establishing ourselves in a home and a relationship with a wife or a husband in which we really know how not only to love, but to be loved, is because we've never learned how much the Lord Jesus loves us and how free we are to take it. Some of you men, you need to let your wife love you. Let her love you. Let her worry about you. Let her pat you on the head. Let her serve you. Let her love you. Don't push her emotionally at a distance. Don't be afraid of being intimate with her. And I'm not speaking of sexuality alone. Don't keep your heart guarded because you're afraid it'll be hurt. What kind of man are you? You scared of being hurt? You're hurting her. Are you protecting yourself? You women, let your husband love you. Stop this stuff with your countenance that makes him reminded all the time that you don't deserve to be loved. Your mother and daddy told you you didn't deserve to be loved. And you believe it. And you've got enough sin in you. And let him do for you. Let him make over you. Let him provide for you and take it and receive it and thank God for it. Snuggle up next to him and say, I need to be loved. Worm it out of him. The reason some of you can't do it is because it never occurred to you that the Lord Jesus really loves you. He delights to love you. It's not a begrudging thing with him. What do you think of Christ? Do you think it's a nuisance for him to love you? It's never been. Could we say it that way? Let him love you. Now, we know what we mean by that. He does love you. But these men have a special relation to the Father and the Son that's seen in some other ways. Notice in the first place, these apostles are recipients of a foundational commission. The apostles are the recipients of a foundational commission. There are several passages of Scripture which make this clear, but I want to start with Matthew 28. Now, some of you may be thinking, it's going to be hard for me to know how I can turn the Sermon on the Apostles into something that's really sweet and gospel-oriented. Well, I don't know either exactly all the time, but I'll tell you this. We need to understand the ministry of the Apostles. We need to see it, and we need to esteem it, and we need to value it biblically. And I think out of that we can more appreciate the gospel and perhaps correct some of our erroneous thinking. Matthew 28:19. This is essentially a commission to the apostles. Now it has its repercussions to the larger church, but it is commission given to the apostles. He says in verse 19, Go you therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now there's the commission. It's the apostles that received this commission to see to it that the gospel is preached and applied in living to every nation of the earth. 
But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's obvious they were given a commission, but I've called it a foundational commission. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking to the church and saying to them that we are no more strangers and sojourners outside the commonwealth of Israel, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, the apostle in verse 20 says, being built, and that's off the church, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The church is built upon an apostolic foundation. Their commission was foundational. They are the recipients of a foundational commission. These men are special. The rest of the church is not the foundation of the church. You're not the foundation of the church. The apostles are, along with those prophets. The apostles, not you, not I. We are not equivalent to them in the church. They are foundation stones. We are superstructure. They were given a particular special ministry in the relation to Christ as foundation stones. Back to Acts chapter 1. You say, well, why are you doing this? I want to show you that this is a thread that goes through the New Testament. The apostles are highly esteemed in heaven and were given a particular special place in the church. In chapter 1 of Acts, verse 2, we read, Until the day in which he was received up after that he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Then verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. The parallel of what we read in Matthew, he gave particular commandments to the apostles and commissioned them with the burden of the saving message to the whole world. They bore the burden of this commission on their foundational backs. They make up the foundation of the church. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 42. Speaking of the early church after the great day of Pentecost and the conversion of so many thousands, says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles teaching in fellowship and other things. But the apostles doctrine and fellowship. That's what they continued in. Why? Because the apostles were the foundation stones of the church and their preaching and their doctrine was the foundation doctrine of the church. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the foundation. But how is it laid? In the apostles. In their gospel. That's why when Paul is made an apostle and he introduces so many of his epistles with this designation of himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the will of God, not of men. 
He has to say that because there are those constantly questioning his credentials as an apostle of Christ. And then in Galatians when he says, If anybody else preached to you any other gospel than the one I preached, let him be cut off from Christ. We have apostolic authority to preach what we preach. We're preaching Christ's message. Foundational commission. In 1 Corinthians 12, don't turn there, but we're told that God has set in the church first apostles. Then it goes down the list. Christ gave gifts to the church. Apostles. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. They are preeminent. They're first. They're listed first. They have a foundational commission. Now, they're not the foundation of the church instead of Christ. They are not the vicars of Christ in the earth. But they are the foundation of the church laid by Christ. Himself being the chief cornerstone. His word being that material out of which the building blocks are made. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. What rock? The rock of the characteristic confession of the disciples verbalized in Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation on which the church will be built in its slab of truth. And it's laid in the person and the ministry of the apostles. There's one other thing I want to note. They are the apostles who are the foundation of the church. Not of every religious movement known to man. Not of every so-called Christian ministry. They are foundation stones of the church. They're not apostles at large. They're apostles of the church. Their ministry is to be conducted in the context of the church. Their word is to be preserved and proclaimed in the church, by the church. For the building up of the church to the glory of God. Not every man has a claim on the apostles. Only those in the church have a claim on the apostles. Learn that. But in the second place, their relation to the Father and Son is not only seen as they, they are recipients of a foundational commission, but they are also the recipients of an infallible and final revelation. An infallible that means it cannot teach error. It's incapable of leading astray. And final revelation. Back in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want you to go quickly with me. Our time is speeding. Verse 5. Speaking of the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 5. The Apostle says of this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. They are recipients of a revelation of truth that before that had not been so revealed. In relative terms, the old covenant believer had not seen what the apostles were told. The apostle Paul preached something that before his time had not been able to be preached in its clarity. Relatively speaking, they didn't see the picture. But the apostles were told the picture. They were taught the whole thing. The revelation of the full mystery of Christ. 
was given to the apostles. Turn back with me to John 17 to see how this is worked out in this chapter. These men given infallible and final revelation. John 17, 8. For the words which you gave me, I've given them. The words which you gave me, I gave them. Verse 14. I have given them thy word. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 18. As you did send me into the world, even so I sent them. If you understand the definition of the word apostle, it literally means one who is sent with a message. One sent to say something. Sent on a commission by another to declare another's will and mind and commandments. I sent them into the world the way you sent me into the world. I speak always the things I hear of my Father. I sent them into the world. They'll speak what they've been told. That's the point. He's given them revelation and he sent them to teach it. Verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I don't pray only for these, but for them also that will, and that's the best translation, that will believe on me through their word. The apostles were given words from God to preach to the world by which the world would believe and be saved. But then in chapter 16 of John, which we dealt with in general when we preached on the subject of the Holy Spirit and His ministry, which the Lord promised to send when He left. Verse 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall guide you into all the truth. Now, let me ask you a question. When He said these words, was he speaking particularly and specifically to the individual sitting in this room today? Is he saying that the Holy Spirit is going so to relate to each of you that he himself directly is going to teach each of you all the truth as you talk to him and listen to him? I submit that is not what he's saying. Follow. When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. He shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak. He shall declare to you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he takes of mine and shall declare it unto you. A little while, and you'll behold me no more. To whom is he addressing these words? The apostles who were standing there that day who were about to see him leave. You didn't see him leave. He can, he's never said to you, in a little while you're not going to see me anymore. Because you never have seen him yet. This is an address in that context of those last five chapters, chapter 13 through chapter 18, where he, or chapter 17, where the Lord is speaking directly to that inner band of his apostles. He's giving them a promise that the Spirit of truth is going to teach the apostles the whole truth. 
He says, there are many other things I'd like to teach you, but I can't now, you can't bear them. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll lead you into all truth. This is not a generic promise to every Christian ever born that somehow he'll have a unique relationship to the spirit whereby he, with or without a Bible, with or without a teacher, will get direct revelation from God. That is not the teaching of this text. And all claims that use this text to support that are erroneous and are in great danger. This is an apostolic promise. He gave to the apostles the full revelation about the truth. That's the ones he gave it to. He commissioned it to them. Infallible and final revelation. You are aware, aren't you, of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophet, has in these last days spoken to us in Son, by His Son. Now you are aware that that passage definitively lays out the history of Revelation. God spoke in parts and in different ways and in different times in the past, but now He has finally spoken not in parts and not through prophets and not in different ways, but definitively in His Son. Let us lay hold on the things which we've heard the next chapter begins to say. Away from them. For if the word spoken by angels proved to be steadfast and every disobedience was punished, how much greater do you think we deserve if we neglect so great a salvation which first began to be spoken? by the Lord and then by those that heard him and signs followed them to support it. The apostles received unique and special privileges of revelation, the full and final revelation of all the truth. There is no more truth that God's going to teach the church, brethren. He embedded it in the rocks of the foundation of the church. You pull those rocks out and you're going to find all the truth there is for the church to know in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's what we abide in. That's what we cleave to. There's nothing else. That's it. That's plenty. But it's all. Don't look for something else and don't puff yourself up to think, the Holy Spirit has showed me a new truth. No, He hasn't. He may be new to you, but it's not new. Not to the church. He showed it all to that first generation of apostles. He will guide you into all truth. And He'll tell you about things to come. And that's what we read in books like Revelation. What He told apostles about what's going to come. Nothing bothers me. I, some things do, but not many things bother me and irritate me and grate on me more than when I turn on my Christian broadcasting station and have somebody introducing me to his last day's broadcast. This is the last day's sermon. This is the last day's ministry. This is the last day's when this was written. In these last days God has spoken. My day is no more the last day than John's day was the last day. But we have this view in our generation that somehow we're special. No, we're not. The apostles are. To them he gave a final revelation of his word. Now my design, if you may see, in preaching this is to humble us. To put us in our place. 
I know I'm going to run out of time before I get to it, so I'm going to jump ahead and make an application. I don't want to tell you at 12.10, well, we don't have time for the application. There's one I want to make. There is no abiding apostolic office in living men today. There are no apostles alive in this world today. They're in heaven. You say, well, how, how can we continue in the apostle fellowship then? If you continue in the apostles' doctrine, you will continue in their fellowship because you will stay connected, tied, and intimately in union and unity with those who continue in their doctrine. And that's the ground of unity. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Not lots of different baptisms, lots of different faiths, and lots of different lords, and we all are one. All of the ecumenical movement. No. We're all one in one Lord. One faith. One body of truth. The apostles' body of truth. It's done. It's finished. There's a period, an exclamation point put at the end of the scriptures. Don't add to it, or the plagues of the book will be added. Don't take away from it, or the blessings of the book will be taken away. Apostolic word is final. That's a special privilege. But in the third place, there are other special privileges of which they are the recipients as well. The Lord in chapter 17 of John verse 6 said, I have manifested thy name to them. Now that's part of what we've said. Part of that is his word. But a lot of it is that Christ imparted to these men knowledge of God that apparently very few men in history had ever known before that. And very many lately haven't. Matthew 13, he says to them, as he opens up the parables, he says, Unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. He manifests his Father's glory to them in a way that's special to them. Another thing we've already mentioned is the Lord walked with them. In Acts 1, when they wanted to replace Judas, they said, We have to pick a man from among all those that were with him from the beginning, starting with the baptism of John and leading all the way up to the, his death and his resurrection. And they must join us. To, whoever it is that takes Judas' place must be a witness with us of the resurrection of Christ. These are men privileged to have walked in their sandals with the Lord Jesus. They are also privileged in that they are specially kept by Jesus. Verse 12. They are also privileged in that they are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. According to Acts 4.33 and others, the apostles gave great bold witness to the resurrection. They were there. You fellows, they say to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you judge whether it be right in the eyes of men for us to do this, but we must preach what we've seen and heard. John says it in the first chapter of his epistle. The things we've seen with our eyes, the things we've heard with our ears and touched and handled with our hands concerning the word of life. The apostles can make claims of personal experience beyond any of ours. They're especially privileged. They have preeminence in the church. And lastly, they are recipients of the special privilege of extraordinary gifts. Turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
verse 11. Now I quoted Hebrews 2.4, which said that those that heard the Lord preached to us, and God supported their preaching with signs and wonders. Those that heard the Lord, those eyewitnesses who heard Christ teach, have taught us, and God gave them attending signs to support their preaching. But in 2 Corinthians 12.11, the Apostle Paul, having had to spend a whole epistle defending his apostleship almost, says, I'm become foolish. You compelled me. I ought to have been commended by you. He's saying, you people in Corinth ought to be, you ought to be bragging on me. Why should I have to defend myself to you? You should not, you should be boasting about my ministry among you without my having to raise a voice. I ought, I ought to be able to say, oh, I don't know what I've done. And the Corinthians can speak for me. You ought to be commending me. Here I am trying to get you to recognize my apostleship. You, com- you compelled me. For in nothing was I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. In all patience, by signs and wonders and mighty works, there is a unique place for extraordinary signs and miracles in the apostles. Now, we believe that there were those who, under the ministry of the apostles and contemporary with the apostles, also experienced some of these signs, especially some of the uh, extraordinary expressions of worship and prayer and prophecy that rose up in the early church. We are also, though, committed to the idea that these were apostolic signs intricately connected with the apostolic era, the apostolic authority, the apostolic message. And they were signs given to the apostles and their surrounding contemporaries, some of them, for the purpose of establishing the truth of the ascension of Christ, seated on the throne of David, who poured out the Spirit for all mankind to be saved. We do not believe that these are gifts that are normative for the history of the church. We do not believe that these are gifts that are appropriate for every Christian. They're not any longer necessary. The scriptures have been completed at the conclusion of the apostolic era. We don't need any further revelation. Now, whatever we would do with the question, well, what if? Let's just say hypothetically there's a nation over there, there's a little group of people in a little village and there's never been a Bible, the apostles never got to them and nobody ever told them about Christ and they'll never have a Bible. Would you deny the possibility that God might directly speak to somebody? No, I would not deny that possibility. But I would not enter into the debate because it's a hypothetical situation. We're not saying God can't. We're not saying God's not the God of miracles. We're not saying any of that. We're simply saying these signs were uniquely deposited into an apostolic ministry. The apostles had signs that denoted them. Did I not show you the signs of an apostle, Paul says? Well, what's the difference between an apostolic sign and another sign? These signs were connected with authoritative, Christ-centered, apostolic ministry. When they died and the signs were withdrawn because no longer needed, Nearly a century went by, or not quite, and they began to creep back into the church by others who said, saw themselves as nearly equivalent to the apostles. And pretty soon, the church began to use signs and wonders to prove doctrines that were not true. The Bible calls them lying wonders. 
That's the history of the church. And so what's really happened in our generation is not new. It really started in the second century. After about a half century where there were no gifts that we know of, no extraordinary signs, they started popping up again in some spurious groups here and there. And pretty soon Rome adopted it. And pretty soon she perfected it. And now you can go put your hand on the tears of, a, of an icon in a church somewhere that's praying for world peace. It was in the paper a week or two ago. You can go and be healed at a certain font by some apparition of Mary or someone else. Why? These are validations of their doctrine. How could they be wrong and they have these miracles? But biblically, these that have pasted the apostles upon the tops of their cathedrals in plastic and concrete have denied the apostolic uniqueness of the extraordinary gifts. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. I guess this is as important as any doctrine to be preached because there are people who come into this church building from other places and they sincerely are looking for the truth. They like the warmth and the friendliness of this church. They like the style of preaching. We've heard them say that. I didn't say they like me. I didn't, I didn't mean that. But we've heard people comment about we like the way this church preaches. There's something real about you people. There's, we like that, but what about the Holy Spirit? Where's that? And we look at him with that empty gaze and say, what do you mean? Well, you know, you don't have the Spirit. And we say, who told you that? Well, you don't speak with tongues. Who told you that that is proof of having the Holy Spirit? Witches speak in tongues. Hindus speak in tongues. All sorts of cult groups speak in tongues. Satan worshippers speak in tongues. If we would get out of the extraordinary, teenagers speak in tongues. Well, listen to their music. But they mean that they have been taught, and I believe brainwashed, to believe sincerely that if you really know God and have the Spirit, you're going to have evidences of extraordinary, supernatural things going on every time you meet together. And if you go into a church and they don't do that, don't stay there. They don't believe in the Holy Ghost. And sincere people who really like everything they heard and saw go away sad because we don't have the Spirit and that's scary to them. I believe that's a valid statement. I believe that's historically demonstrable. But what I'm saying to you is we do have the Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. You wouldn't have heard what you heard preached or felt what you felt or saw what you saw if He weren't here. And what you've done without realizing it by saying we don't have Him, you have passed judgment on us by standards that are external, and you've assumed thereby that we somehow are second-class Christians, if at all Christians, because we don't measure up to a standard that someone else taught you we ought to measure up to. You've not given us the time to get to know where we come from. You've not seen the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because you're not looking for that. You've been taught wrong. You're saying that everyone in this church is devoid of the Spirit of Christ because He doesn't preach or speak in tongues. And we're saying you've made a great judgment here. 
of people who love the gospel and love Jesus and love the Bible and love souls. How did we get to feel that way if it weren't for the Spirit? Is it possible that the Spirit simply omitted us in those gifts for some reason? Well, we believe He did. We believe He left those gifts away from us for a reason. And we may debate with you what the reason is, but we don't believe it means we don't have it. We could tell you, if I could embarrass some, we could raise up several here who used to be in those groups and practice those things that came to us and they said, now what about if I do, we would say, what you do in private, you do in private, but we don't practice these things in public. You wait and see, you help us and you tell us where you think you're biblical, we'll tell you where we think, but hang around a while. And as far as I know, unless some of you pull the wool over my eyes, about six months, and you would come to us one at a time and say, you know, I don't do that anymore. And we said, why? We didn't tell you you couldn't. We haven't been coming into your home and said, stop, stop. We didn't, did we? But what happened? You didn't need it anymore. You started feeding on manna from heaven, and the onions and the leeks and the garlics of Egypt were no longer satisfied. And the externals weren't the issue anymore. And you found that that social acceptance that came with practicing that thing was not needed here. Because we loved you anyway. And you lost that need of psychological building up. Now, I'm aware, brethren, that we're talking about a very delicate issue, very sensitive. And I know there are things and the workings of God that I do not comprehend. And I will not finalize my statements by saying that I know it all and have seen it all and experienced it all. I'm, that's a dangerous thing. I would never say that something somebody's doing is absolutely not of God and be able to prove it. I'm afraid of saying that. I don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and His work. But I will say that most of what I've seen has been much less than impressive to me from a biblical perspective. And I've seen it die too easily among those that when they first came to us were adamant about it for me to believe it was very significantly spiritual. Things that God gives don't just pass off by osmosis. Well, I said all that to say that the answer to the reason for this is that these are uniquely things belonging to the apostles and those surrounding their work and their planted churches. These are evidences that the word of the gospel of Christ is the, the truth. Christ Jesus is Messiah. And in that generation, God declared it, stamped it with signs and wonders and settled it in history. We don't have them anymore because we don't need them anymore. John the Baptist did no signs. Why not? Didn't need to do it. You go through history and you'll find very few times in history when there were extraordinary signs. Very few times. The general whoop and warp of the work of the gospel in history has been in the context of the ordinary means of ordinary people. But you know what we have? We have a generation of puffed up people who are not satisfied to be mere humans. We want to be God. That's what humanism is. You that heard the quote yesterday by Gloria Steinem, that's what they believe. We must replace the kid's concept of God and teach them that their hope is in man. Well, when man wants to be God, he starts by trying to be a little more than man, and his apostleship is nice. 
we have Pentecostal brethren who have living apostles in their churches. They've got to make them apostles because they know the Bible enough to know you've got to have an apostolic connection to have these wonders. They've got to make them apostles because nobody will listen to them if they're not special and extra. So they make, they promote them. Now we're going to have a foundation in the church that's so vast, if all of them are counted, that there's no room, no more rocks left for the superstructure. The Mormons have their apostles. Rome has their apostles. They have one sitting in the chair in Rome today. An apostle! But not of Christ. They have special privileges no one else can have. Well, I'm going to add the second point to my support of my statement about who the apostles are. They're special not only because they have a special relation to the Father and Son that is seen in that they are recipients of a foundational commission and an infallible and final revelation and special privileges, but also their special relation and their glory and their grace and their greatness is seen in the second place in their definitive relation to the world a special relation to the father and son but a definitive relation to the world this will be how we'll conclude this morning because this is what gives the apostles their badge this is where Paul gets his bragging rights he really undermines all this effort to be somebody big we read in John 17:11 that they are in the world. Jesus said, they are in the world. I'm not in the world anymore, they are. What is he telling us? I did not leave them here in a monastery. Apostles don't stand above the crowd. We stated they're preeminent, but they don't walk like preeminent. What did Jesus teach them? The Gentiles lorded over each other. That is not to be so among you. You serve each other. You're not to be strutting about in your regal robes of apostleship with your hands folded in that semi-pious way that makes everybody think there must be something special because you didn't walk special. No, no. You don't put on this religious front to make you look spiritual. These men all walked with a different gait. Their skin tones were different. Their hair color and amount of it was different. They were like us. We're at one here, but we're all very different. And I glory in those differences. We need those differences. That's the way they were. These men were in the world. They were not elevated up here to a monastery to do their study and send out flyers. They didn't fly over with a gospel blimp and dump their stuff on towns and move on. These guys walked into town and stayed as long as they needed until they were run out in the world but he also says they're hated by the world therefore the world hates them we read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 how he describes the world's attitude toward the apostles they're hated why are they hated? because they're not of the world they don't fit these fellows cannot get anybody in the world to praise them because they don't fit woe to you if all men speak well of you the Lord told them enough no very few do very few speak well of these apostles therefore the world hates them they're not of the world they're not of the world 
They are not like the world. They don't think like the world. They don't act like the world. When the world celebrates, these men don't get excited. The world says, what's wrong with you? You're missing out on all the fun. And they say, it's not e- I can't even explain it to you. We're talking in two different cosmos. I, I can't, if I tried to tell you, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. You don't say, oh yeah, I'm getting all the fun because you can't describe what you have in Christ as fun. But if you try to go through the whole, they're, they're bored with you before you get to your first sentence. The apostles were like that. They laid the proper foundation for us. They're not of the world. They are assailed by the evil of the world. The Lord said in verse 15, I don't pray you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. That evil is going to be pressing them constantly. The evil one and all of his influences. Take them, keep them away from that. How can that happen? How can you be in the world, not of it, and separated from its evil? Well, that takes grace. These are special men. But they were also sent into the world. In it, hated by it, not of it, assailed by its evil, but sent right into it. That's the nature of an apostle. I'll tell you, one of the most observable evidences of Pope John Paul II's falsehood is his popularity. He has lost the premium badge of apostleship the way the day the world thinks he's the greatest Christian that ever lived. Why don't they boast on Simon Peter the way they boast on his successor? Why don't they brag about Paul who said that their doctrines are from the pit of hell when they deny the right to marry and forbid from eating meat? What is their problem? Their problem is that they want the favor of the world and true apostles couldn't care less. These men show their definitive relation to Christ in, Christ in their definitive relation to the world. And we who walk in their fellowship must be like them. I glory in the apostles. You want to be an apostle? Listen at the biblical description of an apostle in the world. You remember what the Corinthians were doing to Paul? In chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he gives a little description. In verse 4 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, these Corinthians are, are, are puffed up. Boy, they have gifts. They have knowledge. They've got the Spirit. Who's this weakling apostle? When he comes, he's not eloquent. We have some eloquent preachers here in Achaia, some Greek orators. The old apostle Paul, he knows very little about oratory. He doesn't come in the excellency of speech. I think that some did not like his appearance because he had a weakly appearance somehow. It seems to be something of that indication. Verse 4, he says, In everything commending ourselves as ministers of God. How? In much patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. You ever see that on the face of a pope? You ever see this on the face of some of these self-appointed Pentecostal apostles who do all the miracles and drive their Rolls Royces around town? In pureness, in knowledge, 
in long-suffering, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in love unfeigned, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right and on the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live. Now note something in there. <coughs> an apostle was not ashamed of being an unknown in the world. You ever feel a little uncomfortable when the church starts talking about expanding our influence? Anything in you ever say, oh, I'm scared about that? Or let's get on television. Upgrade our profile. Well, there's nothing in itself wrong with that, but we must be careful. It's not altogether bad to be unknown. We must not start promoting ourselves as rapidly and as broadly as we can, or we may well become known. Dying, and behold, we live chastened and not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. What a paradox. What a collection of paradoxes. That's an apostle. But look at chapter 11 of the same epistle, verse 23. There are those that are in Corinth claiming to be ministers of Christ. He has called them ministers of the devil up in verse 15. And in verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as one beside himself. He's saying, I, I, I sound like a crazy man, even discussing this. Are they ministers of Christ? I more, in labors more abundantly. He makes no reference to world travel. He makes no reference to front page New York Times. He makes no reference to in labors, in prisons. The badge of apostleship. I've been in jail more than they have. That proves I'm an apostle. You see what he's saying? In stripes above measure, in deaths, oft of the Jews, five times received I thirty-nine stripes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I suffered shipwreck a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of rivers, in perils of robbers, in perils of my countrymen, in perils from the Gentiles, in perils of the city, perils in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, labor and travail, in watching, often that means without sleep, in hunger and thirst, in fasting, often in cold and nakedness, besides all that, the care of the churches. That's an apostle. He doesn't scoot around in his bubble. He dies every day. He's vulnerable to the world. Never occurred to him. Oh, he, he will, if it necessitates, get down out of Damascus by a basket at night. That's the glory of an apostle. But he'll not have a subsidized uh, Pope mobile to get him out of town with bulletproof glass. I say that and it sounds funny, but isn't it pitiful that the vicar of Christ in the earth cannot even be touched by people? You say, but we've got to protect that man. Oh, God will protect his true apostle. And when it's time to die, they die. And as far as I know, if history is any, if legend or if the tradition is any truth, I don't believe any of these except possibly John lived to a ripe old age. At least lived to a natural death. We're not even sure about him. That's apostleship. He's a special man. What I wanted to do this morning was glory in the apostles. 
and in their doctrine and in their fellowship. And I wanted to hold up their book given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ himself who have been faithful to speaking to us the words of God and have laid a solid foundation in and for the church and who need to be esteemed properly. How do you esteem them properly? Follow their example. Believe their word and glorify the Savior that sent them. Don't put yourself as an apostle. You never will be one. Let the Lord elevate you to what he'll elevate you. But let's get it in our minds. Now, I trust that I've done some information this morning to help some of you in your dealings with brethren that are Pentecostalish who may not be clear on some of this. I hope I've helped settle some of you in your own confidence that, that this church is not keeping something back of God from you because we're scared of miracles. I hope that I've helped you see that there are false apostles and there are true ones. I hope I've helped you regard their word as so vital and I have to close by saying if the apostles speak they are speaking the words of God. There is a doctrine of true apostolic infallibility and it's biblical. It's the Bible. If the apostle addresses marital norms those are God's norms. They're not Paul's prejudices. What we declared to some opposition yesterday is God's truth and must be declared. What we said to some that didn't want to hear it yesterday, they will hear it at the judgment. And if we hadn't said it, their blood will drip from our hands. If you haven't a grasp of the judgment day and of their probable never hearing what they heard again yesterday, you have no right to hold back your spirit and not support what was said to them. And you will stand also with the eye of Christ one day who will look into your heart and he'll reveal that you weren't supportive of the declaration of the salvation of their souls. I would much rather stand before Christ and have him say, you did your best. You told them the truth. You're one-tenth of telling them. than to have to stand before him while they say, for the sake of keeping my friendship, you didn't save my soul. If the apostle speaks about marriage, he's speaking God's words. If he says women ought to be quiet in the churches, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 14, If any man contentious about this, let him understand the things I speak of the commandments of God. If he speaks of ecclesiastic norms in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, about qualifications for elders, about the order of prayer meeting, about the subject matter of prayer meeting, about the head of the church, about deacons, he's speaking Christ's directives. Let us continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Let us stay in close fellowship with those that are committed to their doctrine and fellowship. I'll ask you this. Do you know the Bible? Have you made it your life's work to know the Bible? I'll tell you, that's where you're going to be saved. In the Apostles' Doctrine. I pray not only for these, but for all those who will believe on me through their word. If you don't know the Apostles' Doctrine, you cannot be saved. You must submit to the Apostles' Doctrine. 
you must believe the gospel of the apostles. And some of you are letting your Bible stay closed while you want us to feed you with the gospel. We'll do it, and God may save you that way, but I tell you, if I were you, I'd want to find out what the apostles have said. I'd want to steep my life in it. I'd want to learn all I could, because the scriptures are able to make us wise to salvation. Well, I trust that in this mattering of introductory material, God has helped us to follow a little bit more esteem for these wonderful men who by grace were chosen, not because they were intrinsically righteous, and who have been greatly used for your salvation and mine. You see what you've done? You've received the benefits of the saving grace of God through the hands and the mouths of these men who obeyed and kept his word and faithfully preached it to their own death. You're saved because they shed their blood for the truth. Thank God for them. Long for the day when you'll have fellowship with them up front and face to face. And do them the honor of following in their steps in terms of your ethics and your morals and your love of the gospel. Let us bow together. Our Father, you know much more that could have been said and much more that was planned. And you know how to turn even these loaves and fish into the feeding of multitudes. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us a proper esteem for those special men whom you chose and used, and still use, who, being dead, yet speak. And we pray that you would remove every prejudice against them that we have, and that you would make us to have hearts full of receiving every word that they in their faithfulness to you have spoken to us. See that this church, O oh Lord, abide in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship until Jesus comes. We would pray that many who sat here this morning strangers to Christ and grace who heard a sermon that had some interest but that didn't touch the heart and although we did not open up the great issues of the gospel we would pray that they have seen and heard enough that you would use it to draw them to Christ that they would be curious enough to inquire and that we'd be able to declare to them clearly the gospel help them to see that the message of the apostles that's centered in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners is the message of their salvation O Lord our God how dependent on you we are for sanctifying what's been done this morning and what's been said do have mercy upon us and feed our souls on these offerings we pray in Jesus name Amen Thank you.